Good morning. (laughs) Hear the word of the Lord. Exodus 24. Then the Lord said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel. You are to worship at a distance, but Moses alone is to approach the Lord. The others must not come near, and the people may not come up with him. When Moses went and told the people all the Lord's words and laws, they responded with one voice, Everything the Lord has said, we will do. Moses then wrote down everything the Lord had said. He got up early the next morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and set up 12 stone pillars representing the 12 tribes of Israel. Then he sent young Israelite men, and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls as fellowship offerings to the Lord. Moses took half of the blood and put it in bowls, and the other half he splashed against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it to the people. They responded, We will do everything the Lord has said. We will obey. Moses then took the blood, sprinkled it on the people, and said, This is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and the 70 elders of Israel went up and saw the God of Israel. Under his feet was something like a pavement made of lapis lazuli, as bright blue as the sky. But God did not raise his hand against these leaders of the Israelites. They saw God, and they ate and drank. The Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and stay here, and I will give you the tablets of stone with the law and commandments I have written for their instruction. Then Moses set out with Joshua, his aide, and Moses went up on the mountain of God. He said to the elders, Wait here for us until we come back to you. Aaron and Hur are with you, and anyone involved in a dispute can go to them. When Moses went up on the mountain, the cloud covered it, and the glory of the Lord settled on Mount Sinai. For six days the cloud covered the mountain, and on the seventh day the Lord called to Moses from within the cloud. To the Israelites, the glory of the Lord looked like a consuming fire on top of the mountain. Then Moses entered the cloud as he went up the mountain, and he stayed on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. Thanks, Sierra, for reading that. Good morning, everybody. Starting to feel like a summer morning around here. It's wonderful to have you with us this morning. It's wonderful to be in this uh, book of Exodus. And we're at a high point this morning of the book of Exodus. This is the turning point of the whole book, is chapter 24. And if you think about high points, one of, one of the high points in world history, in U.S. history especially, was the moon landing, right? Putting a man on the moon, first person to step on any other planet besides the earth. But one of the things we don't remember is the moon landing was the result of a promise that had been made, a declaration that had been made almost a decade before JFK, in a joint meeting of Congress, said these words, This nation should commit itself to achieving the goal. Before the decade is out, we will land a man on the moon and return him safely to earth. Now, among other things, this is, this is a master class in goal setting. And we got some college girls from OSU with us this morning, and I know when I was there, they taught smart goals, right? It's got to be, it's got to be specific. It's got to be measurable. It's got to be achievable, relevant, and time-bound. That's how you set a great goal. And JFK's goal is all of those things. Before the end of the decade, man on the moon, and bring him safely back to earth. That's a fantastic goal. 
but it was also a promise. We are going to leverage everything we have. In fact, that's why he was in front of Congress, was to say, let's leverage everything we have to fulfill this goal. Let's use everybody's talents. Let's appropriate the money. Let's make this happen. We remember the moon landing, but sometimes we don't remember the promise that got them there. The same is true with the people of Israel. We remember the promised land. We remember the exodus. We remember the plagues. But do you remember the promise that got them there? In chapter 6 of the book of Exodus, God makes an astonishing promise to the people of Israel. In chapter 6, verse 6, it says, Say to the people, this is God speaking, Say to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burden of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you will know that I am the Lord your God, who's brought you out from under the burden of the Egyptians, and I will bring you into a land that I swore to give to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. That's his promise. One of the amazing things about the book of Exodus is how similar it is to our spiritual lives. Or you can read the, the book of Exodus, and one of the reasons we are reading the book of Exodus is because it is a master plan for the way God works in the world. So what God did in Exodus gives you a sense of what he does with all people. He finds them in a state of slavery, in a place of oppression, in a place where they have abandoned their former love for God and their service to him. And he initiates by making a promise, I will bring you out, I will set you free, I will do whatever it takes to bring you into my promised land and show you that I am the Lord. And if that requires plagues, so be it. And if that requires splitting the Red Sea, so be it. And if that requires wandering in the wilderness for 40 years, so be it. I am the Lord. And I never break my promises. In Exodus chapter 24, the promise is coming true. The promise is coming true. But here's the fascinating thing. What is the goal of the promise? Is it just to get out of Egypt? Is it just to get to a better place, the promised land where there's milk and honey? Is it just to be your own boss? Is it just to get to set up their own religious rituals? What is the promise? If you remember from that passage, the promise is very specific. I'm going to do all of these things for one specific goal so that you can be my people and I will be your God and you will know that I am the Lord. Amen. See, the promise that God makes to his people is not a promise of abstraction. Things are going to go great in your life. Circumstances are going to change. He's going to set you free from an addiction, or he's going to set you free from tyranny. And all those things are part of the plan, but they're not the end goal. The end goal of the promise is that you would know God intimately, that you would be face-to-face -face restored with Him, that you would be fully satisfied in Him, that you, it says at the end of the Bible, would be so close, so up close and personal with God that He'd be able to reach out and write His name on your forehead. 
that you would see his face and worship him. That's the promise. That's the plan for all of history, that God wants to do whatever it takes to bring you out of whatever you're in so that you could be with him forever. So Exodus chapter 24 is so significant, not just because the people are out, not just because they've got a covenant, not just because they're on the way to the promised land, but it's the time in the book of Exodus that they actually see God. They actually get the promise. They actually get to see God and be with Him. And we learn three significant things from this encounter. First of all, when we see God restoring His people and bringing them out, we learn how to have a relationship with God. We learn what it's like to actually commune with the God of the universe. Secondly, we learn what's required of us when we do see God, which is worship. We learn how to worship Him. And then lastly, when we see the feast at the end of this story, we learn how to live our everyday lives with God at the center. So let's talk about this relationship. And the biblical word for relationship is covenant. God is making a covenant. And if we were to look structurally at the book of Exodus, what we have in chapter 24 is called the consummation of the covenant. It is the whole reason you had the covenant in the first place is to have this moment where the covenant is complete and God is joined with his people forever. So chapters 20 through 23, the most famous part being the very beginning of chapter 20, which is the Ten Commandments, are like the terms of the covenant. So in chapter 19, they prepare In chapter 20, they hear what are the terms of the covenant. And in chapter 24, they seal the covenant and they come together and they say their I do's and they have this big feast afterwards. And we reading this are like, this is not a covenant. This is a a wedding. This is a wedding. In fact, the most significant covenant that we're aware of is a wedding. That's something that God invented. God performed the first marriage in Genesis chapter 2. And at the very end of the Bible, we get the consummation of the marriage, which is the wedding supper of the Lamb, the celebration of the wedding that God is officiating, bringing his people to himself again. And what's significant about this covenant structure, Paul says, you know, marriage is supposed to teach us about Christ, and Christ is supposed to teach us about marriage. The covenant of marriage is a living, breathing example of what happened on Sinai, of the kind of bond that God wants to make with his people. So we have all kinds of examples of covenants in the ancient world. We have treaties between powerful kings and less powerful kings. We have truces between two empires that are strong. But what we don't have in the ancient world is a covenant between a God and his people. This is the only example in the ancient world. If we just step back and look at the Bible as a historical document, this is the only example we have in the ancient world of a God who would bind himself to his people. And this this covenant is so extraordinary. Think about what happens here. The two parties come together. And Moses, who's in this kind of weird officiant role in this covenant, reads to the people what these vows are for this covenant. And we can summarize those in the Ten Commandments. This is how this relationship is made to run, with love and obedience, with the acknowledgement of God's grace and the surrender of our wills to Him. 
And as they go on, they talk about how are we going to live our life before God? How are we going to organize our community around God? How are we going to live now on the other side of this relationship with God? And they remind each other of these covenant terms. And after the vows have been made and the declaration of intent, Moses says, what are you going to do? And they say, everything that we've heard, we will obey. We will do what we've said. This is the grand I do. And then Moses does something that you've never seen at a wedding. I guarantee you've never seen this at a wedding. Moses takes the blood, throws some of it on the altar, and some of it on the bride. What's going on here? He sprinkles the blood all over the people. And it's, it's a reminder to them of something that happened earlier in the book of Exodus, that this covenant doesn't come for free. This covenant is costly. See, this is actually the same act that happens in Exodus chapter 12 and 13 at the Passover. At the Passover, what happened was God said, I am going to purchase you out of Egypt. And and I'm not just talking geopolitically here, I'm talking spiritually. And in order to be purchased spiritually, in order to be forgiven and redeemed spiritually, there has to be a payment. There has to be a payment for sin, and it must involve blood. So on that night of the last plague, the Israelites gathered around and each family took a Passover lamb and they took the blood from the lamb and they spread it over the door hole, the, the, the doorposts of their house and they said, in our house, we serve the Lord. The blood of the lamb covers our home. And on that night, when the angel of death comes through Egypt, it passes over the mark of the blood that this house has already been paid for. This this sin has been forgiven. Well, now in Exodus chapter 24, things are getting a little bit more personal. Instead of saying our home is covered by the blood of the Lamb, instead of uh, the doorpost of our house being covered, now the people themselves are being covered with the blood of the Lamb. See, when Jesus takes the blood and applies it to the people, it's that personal understanding of the blood covers me. The blood covers me. It's like God is reminding them, you are so significant to me that I'm willing to pay the cost. What what they would have been thinking too, though, is another covenant in the Old Testament. In Genesis chapter 15, God makes a covenant with Abraham. And in the covenant with Abraham, they do what you did with an ancient covenant. They took animals and they cut them in two and they put it put the animals in a valley, and they let the blood run down to the bottom. And in all the ancient covenants we have, the weaker king walks through the blood in the middle of the valley. And as the blood splashed up on their legs and on their robes, it was a reminder that if you break this, you must pay the penalty. But something really odd happens in the covenant with Abraham. Again, unlike any other covenant in the ancient world, in this one, the stronger party walks through the blood. So what happens is Abraham goes into a deep sleep, and there is a torch and a pot, and they move through, and God himself walks through the covenant. It's this crazy moment where it's as if God is saying, this is what will happen to me if I break the covenant with you. So in Exodus chapter 24, 
when we see Moses throw the blood, this is a sign to them. This is a memory to them that their freedom was bought with a price. And in fact, it was bought with such a significant price that God himself was on the hook for the covenant he was making. Just step back and think about what this says about a relationship. If you have a relationship like this where somebody says, I initiated it and I love you and I'm bonding myself to you and in fact, I'm willing to put my life on the line for you. That's the kind of relationship God has with his people. See, God is not a God of arm's length agreements. He, he is the God of face-to-face covenants. You know, Peter tells us that this covenant is something that God has made with us as well. In fact, it's a new covenant. When Jesus is at the Last Supper with his disciples and he takes the cup, do you remember what he says? This cup is the new covenant in my blood. The words there are almost an exact quote of Exodus chapter 24. This is a new covenant of blood. This is one that I'm making where my blood is going to be the payment. Not the blood of sheep and goats, but I will lay my own life down for you. In 1 Peter, he takes this image, and you know, we think of Peter as somebody who was sitting there at that table that night, somebody who knows intimately what it was like to have Jesus lay down his life for him. And Peter, right in this letter to the churches, he says, to those who are elect exiles in the dispersion, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, and for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with his blood. What an odd thing for Peter to say, that as a Christian, you've been sprinkled with the blood of Jesus. You're like, I don't remember that happening. In my denominational background, we don't do that kind of weird stuff when you become a Christian. Of course, Peter's reminding us that we too are covered with the blood of Jesus. In fact, there's no way into the covenant outside the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus. It's not good enough just to have it on the doorpost of your house. It's not good enough for your parents to be Christians or the fact that you spend a lot of time in church or the fact that you're around a lot of Christian people. None of that actually will get you across the line. The only thing that can do it is have the blood of Jesus shed on the cross for sin, for you, applied directly to your life through faith. And so, for Peter, what he's basically saying is, if you read that story in Exodus chapter 24, what should flood into your mind now is, have I been sprinkled with the blood of Jesus? Does the blood of Jesus apply to me? Does the blood of Jesus cover me? Well, if so, you're a member of the covenant. If you've put your trust in Jesus and his blood covers you, you're you're a member of this same kind of covenant that they made on Sinai. The amazing thing is the next thing that we realize tells us what happens when you're a member of this covenant. If you're, if you're a member of the covenant, if you've had the terms read and you've said I do and you've had the blood applied to you, you're a member of the covenant. And what, what happens when you're in the, in the covenant? Well, Exodus chapter 24 shows us that you begin to worship. You begin to worship God. So, so many of us are We're familiar with the fact that we should worship, right? We know that we should worship, but have you ever thought about how much the time the Bible spends on how to worship? You know, if you're in a Bible reading plan, you definitely think about this, because when you get into the doldrums of the end of Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, those books are all explaining this one event. If you're going to worship God, 
What does God require? How does God want to be worshipped? How does God prescribe for us to approach him and worship him? And after Moses takes the blood and throws it on the people, the most amazing scene in Exodus takes place. It says in verse 9 that Moses and Aaron, and Aaron's two sons, Nadab and Abihu, and seven of the, 70 of the elders go up and get this. They saw the God of Israel. Now, this is like hugely problematic, right? Because later you're going to read, nobody can see God and live. So what's, what's hilarious about this, and it just gives you the severity of what's happening in this passage, when you have some Jewish translations of this passage. So, for example, when, when the Jews translated the Old Testament into Greek in the second century before Jesus, they translated this as, they saw the glory of God. They saw the feet of God. They saw something like God. But that's not what the text says. The text says they saw the God of Israel. That's like what everything has been building up to. They saw this dangerous, consuming fire God of Israel. And when you read the next verse, you realize that something actually kind of strange happens. They see the God of Israel, and there was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heavens for clearness. And he did not lay his hand upon the chief men of the people, and they beheld God, and they ate and they drank. So we find out two interesting things. We find out that under his feet there's this clear pavement, and we find out that he doesn't kill them when they see them. Those are the two things that Moses thought it would be good to include. Here's what they saw, and here's what happened. They didn't die. They didn't die. And this has got to be a funny moment when they come down from the mountain, because it says at the end of the passage that to the people down on the ground, they're looking up, and all they can see is a consuming fire. So they don't know what's going on up there, but these 75 people go up there, and they see God, and they eat with Him, and it's like they must have come down, and people are like, what happened up there? And they're like, we saw God. And what would be the first question you would ask? What did He look like? Right? So is my conception of this old bearded guy with a deep voice in his head, is that, is that accurate? Should I be changing that? What did God look like? And when they come down, they said, we don't know. We don't get a description. Notice what we do get. It says, when they saw God, they saw what was under his feet. Now, I don't think it's too much to speculate what position do you have to be in in order to see what is under someone's feet? On your face, on the ground. Now, there is a theory in this passage that what happened was the people of Israel look up and God is coming down and He is standing on the sky. And people quote that passage in the Psalms, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. And so what's happening is they're looking up and they see the sky and they're, they're basically seeing the footprints of God on the sky. But, but, but I think the, the easier way to read this is they see God and immediately they do what every other person in the Bible who sees God does. They hit the deck immediately. 
You know, it's not a coincidence if we're talking about what does this passage teach us about how to worship God. It's not a coincidence that when people see God, they think they're going to die. Everywhere in the Bible, Isaiah thinks that when he sees God. Ezekiel thinks that when he sees God. John thinks that when he sees Jesus in the book of Revelation. He hits the floor and puts his face to the ground and begins to worship because God is so holy and overwhelming and glorious. In fact, it's probably our fault that we don't think more of the fact that it is dangerous to see the living God. That what happened with these people is right as they're getting up there and seeing God, they're so overwhelmed by the glory of God. And leading up to this in Exodus, the picture of God that you would have is on one hand you have this loving, personal, interested God who is more intimate than your closest friend, and at the same time this dangerous consuming fire who is so holy and so mighty and so other that to even gaze upon him risks your own life and safety. And that's actually a very good description of God. He is holy and other and unapproachable to us, and yet closer than our very skin to us. That's the God we serve. And this moment completely captures that. They see God, and all they can tell you about is what they could see from this level on the ground, worshiping him, being with him. This is a very important lesson to us that we should prepare our hearts to encounter the same God that they did. And not just through outward acts of falling on our faces on the ground, but inward acts of surrender and reverence and praise and worship and obedience. Why do we surrender our lives to him? Because he is ultimately more worthy than anything in the universe. He is the most glorious thing. He is the most wonderful, most valuable, most fearsome thing in the universe. That's the God we serve. In fact, Hebrews, when the author of Hebrews is talking about this very passage, he says, remember, our God is a consuming fire. And remember, we have 24-7 access into his presence. This is the tension of worship. He is intimate and close, and he is glorious and unapproachable. That's our God. That's what makes it so amazing that he covenants with his people. So they they go up on the mountain, and they, they are falling down on their faces. And after that, they eat with God. They are able to have a meal with God. And this, this scene is so potent for what this passage has to teach us about how to live. What does God do when his people come into his presence? After they've fallen on their faces, usually what happens is somebody says, get up. Don't be afraid. Get up. I invited you here. In fact, the only thing that spared their lives is the blood. If they hadn't had the blood, they, they would have been killed in the presence of God because they are unholy and unworthy and separated from him, but he's covered them with the blood and they come into his presence and they sit down at his table and they eat with God. They commune with God. We have a little semblance of this in the English language with our word companion. The word companion literally means someone that you eat bread with. 
And so when you've shared a meal with somebody, you've become a companion. You've, you've developed a bond. You've become a friend with that person. And this is the whole point of what God is inviting them to in this passage is not just to behold him and worship him, but to sit at the table and eat with him, to be his companion. One of the most surprising verses in all of Scripture is when Paul reminds us that God called Abraham his friend, his companion, somebody who'd shared a meal. You know, Abraham literally did share a meal with God. In Genesis chapter 18, he has these mysterious visitors come to his tent. Do you remember what Abraham does is he calls into Sarah and says, get the flour, get the fatted calf, prepare a meal for these people who he doesn't know at the time are the angels of the Lord. And the third one is an appearance of the God of Israel. And the author of Hebrews reminds us, hey, you know, be careful how you entertain strangers. You might be entertaining the God of Israel. You know, just, just a good rule of thumb there. But Abraham became a friend of God because he ate with God. He, he had fellowship with God. He had a relationship with God. He was his friend. And Jesus, before he dies, tells his disciples, you have become my friends. I no longer call you servants. I call you friends. And do, do you remember the context of Jesus saying that? It's at the Last Supper, when Jesus has shared countless meals, but he sets this last meal aside to share with his followers. He says, hey, we're companions now. I've, I've given you the bread that's not just Passover bread, it's the bread of my own body and the blood that I'm shedding for you, and we, we have become friends. We, we have become companions. And the point of Exodus chapter 24 is to remind you that all of the Christian stuff that we do, the worship, the covenant, the theology, the Bible study, the, the companionship we have with one another using our gifts, all the Christian stuff has at the center the whole purpose of this passage, to behold God and to eat with him at his table. You know, we talk a lot about what heaven is going to be like. And I think there's a reason that the predominant metaphor that the Bible gives us for heaven is a feast. We don't know a lot about what we're going to be doing, but we will be feasting with God. We will be across the table, and we will be eating, and we will be celebrating, and we will be singing and, and making merry together because the image that God wants us to get is the point of the covenant is to be together, is to be together. This, to go back to the marriage covenant, for example, is such, such a good lesson. In fact, whenever I do marriage counseling, I always remind them, you've got to spend as much time on the marriage as you do on the wedding, right? Because the temptation is to spend all of your time on the wedding, planning it, orchestrating it, getting it, making it this wonderful moment, and 12 hours later, you're going to wake up and be like, oh, this is what this is really about. It's us. Forever after this, the wedding's over, all the checks have cleared, everything's done, everybody's going home, it's just you and me. That's what you want to prepare for, that's why you get married, is so that you can be together. That's, that's what God did, that's why he sent his son, is not just for all the trappings and wonderful things, it's to be with you forever. So we as Christians, we got to spend time on the marriage on being with God, on what it's like to be His people, and living in this new relationship with Him. 
I want to read you as we close here. I want to read you from Hebrews. We've been mentioning Hebrews through this sermon because the author of the book of Hebrews is obsessed with the book of Exodus. He thinks that the book of Exodus is the way to understand God. So I want to read you is that the book of Hebrews is roughly organized into one giant argument. In fact, it's the longest sustained argument in the New Testament. It runs from chapter 1 all the way up through chapter 10. Some people think chapter 12. And the high point of the argument is a callback to Exodus chapter 24 and to remember what happened when God's people finally sealed the deal and came up the mountain and ate with their God. And what happened? And he says, therefore, brothers and sisters, since we like them have confidence to enter into the holy places, having been sprinkled with the blood of Jesus by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is his flesh. And since we have a great high priest, he spent two chapters, we have an even better mediator than Moses. Since we have such a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near to him with a true heart in full assurance of faith. With our hearts, get this, sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some. This is like preacher's favorite verse, you know, not neglecting to meet together, you know, perfect attendance is worth something in the kingdom of heaven. Not neglecting to meet together, not just because it's a numbers game, not just because it's great to have a lot of people here, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. We come together to experience God through each other, through our gifts, through what God is doing We have full access to God. We should live like we are constantly at the table of the Lord. So the the moon landing was a significant event. It was the the product of a promise that had been made. But I think the most interesting thing about the moon landing is what happened when they actually landed on the moon. So they land, and because they've got to coordinate with like the entire world, they're just sitting there waiting. And they don't get to go out immediately and walk on the moon. And in in the waiting, Buzz Aldrin gets out a little chalice and a little piece of bread that his Presbyterian church had sent with him. Because he said later in his memoir, at the time, I could think of no better way to acknowledge this experience than by giving thanks to God. What was the first act that he did on the moon? Was take communion, was feast with God, was take that little bread and and that cup that he could barely keep the wine in as he was in one-third gravity and celebrate that even there he could feast with the Lord. Even there, he could worship and thank God. Exodus chapter 24 reminds us that even greater than the people of Israel, your life is meant to be spent in fellowship with the Lord, in covenant with Him, worshiping Him, 
feasting with Him. And that's just a preview of what's to come in eternity. So let me pray. Father, we are in awe when we read these passages, and it just seems so real for them that they got to actually see you and fall down and use their senses. And we, we have to use the eyes of our heart, Lord, but we know that one day we too will see you face to face. And like Paul reminds us, we, we get to gaze into the face of Christ now. We have something so much greater than they had then. We get to see the face of your son, Jesus. Father, we thank you today for inviting us to your table, for making yourself available to us, for promising to deliver us and coming through on your promises. Father, show us how to live with you at the center. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So this morning... We'll celebrate communion together, and we'll do exactly what they did in Exodus chapter 22.